Well, I want to minister for a little while this morning through a message I'm calling the fullness of Christ's grace. A few days ago, my wife asked me, she said, what are you going to be preaching about? I said, I'm not really sure, but I think I'm going to be preaching a message called the fullness of Christ's grace. And she says, oh my goodness. I said, what? She said, that's a buffet. And I said, well, I never really thought about it like that. But everything we do is kind of a buffet when it comes to the Lord. That is a big title, but let's just make it simple. All I want us to see today is that Christ's fullness is our fullness. There are not two separate fullnesses. His fullness is our fullness. And until a person awakens to the reality that we already possess the fullness of Christ's grace, you know, until you awaken to that truth, you will never be set free in your heart to live this life that Jesus said we could live in John 10, 10, when he said, I've come that you might have life and life more abundantly. He's not talking about just heaven somewhere. It's going to be easy to live in heaven. He's talking about, I want you to live this abundant life here. But let me say this, when a person does, when they do wake up to the glorious truth that the fullness of Christ's grace lives on the inside of us, I want you to know something. You will never be bound again. Now you say, whoa, wait a minute now. I say, when we awaken, when we come to the revelation that the fullness of Christ's grace lives on the inside of us, you will never be bound again. You say, bound? What do you mean bound? Bound by what? <laughs> bound by the traditions of men? Bound by law? Bound by poor doctrine? I mean, there's a lot of things we can be bound by. We can be bound by the lies of the enemy. We can be bound by sinful habits. We can be bound by fear and shame and guilt and condemnation. I want you to know something. Every one of those things I just mentioned are enemies of the cross. And guess what? Jesus has defeated the enemy. He's defeated the enemy. So when I realize the fullness of grace lives on the inside of me, the fullness of Jesus' grace lives on the inside of me, come on. What have I got to fear? I'm not saying that those things won't come knocking on your door because they will come and knock. The difference is you don't have to let them in. And number two, they will never be your master ever again. Have you ever had a Jehovah Witness or a Mormon come and knock on your door? No, there's probably not a person in here who's ever invited them in the house. Isn't that weird? We won't invite those folks in the house, but we'll invite fear to come into our house. We'll allow shame to come into our house. When I'm speaking of house, I'm not talking about your physical house, but I'm talking about inside of your temple. We entertain these things. We embrace these things as much as we don't like them, as much as we know they're enemies. We allow them to come into our house and speak this propaganda. But the revelation of the abiding fullness of Christ's grace shuts the door on these adversaries once and for all. The thread I want to weave into our hearts this morning again is that Jesus's fullness is our fullness. It's through Jesus's fullness that we receive the gift of righteousness that Romans chapter 5 talks about. It's through Jesus's fullness that we reign in life. It's through Jesus' fullness that we receive God's abundant provision of grace. It's through Jesus' fullness that we receive Daddy's unrestrained love. It's through the fullness of grace that we receive an inheritance, the Bible talks about, that can never perish, it can never spoil, and it can never fade. It all comes through the fullness of Christ's grace. In Christ, 
there is no part and parcel. There is only fullness. Let me say that one more time. Let this stick to your heart like caramel to the outside of an apple. In Christ, there is no part and parcel. There is only fullness. We are not partially forgiven. We are completely forgiven in Christ. The Bible says he has taken away every sin we've ever committed, past, present, and future. That sounds to me like I'm completely forgiven. I don't know about you. I'm completely forgiven. You can believe whatever you want. But our ministry is to tell people, listen, you are completely forgiven in Christ. He didn't come and die in part. It may have been a slow death on the cross, but he died a full death. He paid a full price so that we could have a full inheritance. In Christ, we are not loved so-so. In Christ, we are so loved. That's what the Bible says in John 3, 16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We do not lack and we are not void of power. We are no longer slaves. We are sons and daughter of the most high God. And one other thing I want to say about this, and that is this, we are not orphans. An orphan is a person or someone or something that has become disconnected from their provider. I am not disconnected from my provider. I'm very connected to my provider because my provider lives on the inside of me. Wherever I go, my provider goes. If my provider says, let's go over there, and I say, I don't want to go over there, my provider stays on the inside of me. He doesn't go over there and whistle to me to come across the street. Wherever I go, my provider goes with me. I am very connected to my provider. And Jesus said these words in John chapter 14 and verse 18. He said, I will not leave you as orphans. He said, I will come to you. Now I want you to take those words right there and I want you to lock those up in the china cabinet of your heart this morning. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Jesus said those words. So how did Jesus come to us? I'll tell you how he came to us. He came to us in the fullness of grace. We see the fullness of Christ's grace lavished even on us in the first chapter of the gospel of John. It reads this way. John chapter 1, verses 12 and 14, and then verses 16 and 17. It says, yet to all who received him. Who is him? Come on, that's Christ, isn't it? Yet to all who received him, to those who believed, who is those? That's you. That's me. That's us. That's we. To all who received Christ, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That word right comes from the Greek word exousia. It literally means the power to become sons of God. It means the ability. It means the privilege to become sons of God. It speaks of the inheritance we get as children of God. It speaks of the liberty. It speaks of the freedom. It speaks of the strength. And friends, I want to tell you something. It speaks of the authority. We have the authority to become sons of God. This is no little thing. If all of heaven says, I'm giving you the authority. See, we don't pick that up when we look at the word right. We're like, oh, the right? Okay. But this is the authority. We have the power. We have the ability. We have the freedom. We have the strength to become sons and daughters and children of God. Now, look what he says. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or of a husband's will, but born of God. In other words, he's saying your ancestors had nothing to do with the decision. See, you received and you believed. Your ancestry had nothing to do with it. Your pedigree had nothing to do with it. Friends, I want you to know something. You were born of God. 
How did this happen? It says, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. I love that because in the message translation, it actually says the Word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Oh, I like that. Doesn't that sound good? That's how it says in the message, Bible. And a friend of mine actually wrote a song one time and incorporated those lyrics. It was so cool. And the Word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. The Word became flesh and blood. Jesus ate with the sinners. He made the begging blind man see. Healed the body of a leper. What will he do for you and me? I'll tell you what he'll do for you. If you let him move into the neighborhood, he'll do it all for you. He'll do it all. And it continues. It says, we have seen his glory. Oh, come on. Are you kidding me, man? We have seen his glory, the Bible says. The glory of the one and only Son. Look at the capital Son there. Who's that? Jesus, right? The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father. I'll tell you what, when I was looking at those words in my study this week, those words literally made me cry. Because it says, who came from the Father full of grace and truth. I want to tell you something. Grace and truth was not acquired by Jesus. He didn't earn a whole bunch of points and trade them in for grace and truth. Look how the word says there. He came from the Father full of grace and truth. This is how he came. He didn't earn it. He came full of grace and truth. Now, what does that mean? Because we can look and go, okay, he's full of grace and truth. But now look at those next four words. Out of his fullness. Out of his fullness, we have all received. Look at that. Grace upon grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. We have the fullness of Christ dwelling inside of us, and we continually receive grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon failure upon grace upon grace upon disappointment upon grace. We receive grace upon grace continually through Christ. Now, who is writing this? It is the Apostle John. I've said it before, I'll say it again. His name literally translates as grace. John's name means grace in the Greek, okay? His name translates as grace. So surely a man whose name literally translates as grace is going to have a lot to say about grace, right? I mean, his name is grace. We're only in chapter 1. We're only in verse 14, and he's unleashing this powerful grace. Grace upon grace. Grace came through Jesus Christ. He's already showcasing this awesome grace. But we're only in chapter 1. There are 21 chapters in the Gospel of John. Surely, all throughout John, he's going to smear grace all over the wall, right? But did you know, after these four mentions of the word grace, they come up in three verses, verse 14, verse 16, and verse 17. After those three mentions of the word grace, the Apostle John never mentions the word grace again throughout the balance of his Gospel. I bet you didn't know that, did you? I bet you're going to go home this afternoon and say, I bet you Pastor Mark's wrong about that. I'm going to prove him wrong about that. He's got to be wrong about that. Surely a man whose name means grace. And you know, I'm not saying he doesn't showcase grace. Oh, believe me, he shows us all kinds of vignettes, all kinds of narratives that incorporate grace, but he will never mention grace again through the balance of his gospel. On the other hand, John does mention the word truth 27 times. And if you throw in the word true and you throw in the word truly, there's about 51 mentions of the word truth. But let me ask you this question. What was Jesus full of? Grace and truth. Therefore, you would have thought that John would have penned these words. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace upon truth. But no, John said, out of his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. And as I had to stop and think about that and meditate on that, 
this picture began to develop in my mind as though John had reached deep into his traveler's bag and he pulled out a magnifying glass and he suspended it in a moment of silence over the words he had just penned and he suspended it over that word grace. Not in an effort to minimize truth, but as a harbinger and crusader to magnify God's grace. See, I believe the Holy Spirit wanted us to really see and maybe indelibly etch in our hearts the scope and the magnitude of the new covenant of grace that had just walked into the world. You see, in the Gospel of John, he doesn't start out as a baby. In the Gospel of John, he starts out, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. He's a full-grown man. John doesn't take us back like Matthew, Mark, and Luke to his baby. He doesn't know. Let me tell you about the man I met. You see, friends, the old covenant was a covenant that was filled with truth. There's no question about that. I'll never say that the old covenant was not filled with truth. It was filled with truth, but it was not a covenant that was based upon grace. I'm not saying God didn't show mercy and God didn't show grace to people under the old covenant, but the covenant itself was a covenant of truth, but it was not a covenant based upon, I'm going to do this just because of grace. I don't know about you, but throughout my Christian walk, I have failed many times in word, in thought, and in deed. Anybody with me on that one? There are times my faith took a nosedive. There are times my good intentions took a long walk on a short pier. You ever have that happen? And as much as I love truth, I love truth. Absolutely, I love truth. As much as I love truth, I want you to know something. It wasn't truth alone that ministered to me in my time of need, but rather it was the presence of the fullness of Christ's grace that ministered to me in my time of need. We see this truth in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. The Bible says, Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. Oh, that's what grace will do to you. Grace will make you confident. Look at that. It says, Let us approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find truth to help us in our time of need. A couple of you caught that, didn't you? No, see, there's nothing wrong with truth. But look what he says. He said, I want to draw your attention to this truth right here. He's saying, listen, let us approach the throne of grace where we receive mercy and we find grace to help us in our time of need. Now, let me transition here for a second. One of the mindsets that believers default to when they fail or they stumble is they begin searching for truth in place of grace. Now, I believe we need both, to be honest with you. But truth without grace will breed self-righteousness and legalism. You see, the Pharisees had all the truth they needed. They knew the scriptures, and they were very legalistic. They were very self-righteous. All they had was truth. They didn't know grace. They didn't understand God's grace yet. And it made them very legalistic. It made them very self-righteous. Truth without grace saddles the old covenant circus horse named performance. Let me pause for a second and get yourself in the circus here for a second. You see the horse running around? His name is performance. Trying to make things work in your own effort. You saddle the circus horse named performance. That circus horse has spent his lifetime performing under the tent of meeting. And you know what? He knows how to respond to the applause of people when he's done good. 
And see, that's what people like sometimes. They want you to applaud them when they've done good. Listen, I'm going to tell you something. If you never clap your hands, if you never say amen when I'm preaching, it's going to hurt my feelings a bit. I don't care about all that stuff right there. All I want to do is get up here and talk about God's grace, God's love, God's truth. Of course, it, it is everything all in one. That horse is only heard cheers of approval when he's under the tent, right? He doesn't hear it when he's in the stall. I wonder how many people come by after the circus and love that horse up going, you really did a good job today, you know, just in private, you know. The tent of meeting or tabernacle was the temporary dwelling place of God for the Israelites and the Jewish nation, if you will. But let me tell you something, all of that became obsolete with Christ's cross. We do not have to perform like a circus horse in order to win the approval and the acceptance of our Father's love, His unrestrained love, and the fullness of Christ's grace. We already have it. The Bible says, for out of His fullness we have already received grace upon grace already given. We see a narrative in the Bible that contains truth and grace, and they're working together. Now let me set this up real quick. Jesus has been crucified. He has been buried. He has risen from the dead. And he has not ascended to the Father. He is in that 40 days before he ascends to the Father. So this is where the story begins. And the disciples have all run amok. When they didn't have the physical presence of Jesus, they didn't know how to act. They had just spent the last three, three and a half years with Jesus. And they really didn't know how to act in his presence hardly. But without him, they didn't know how to act. So Peter has an idea one day to go back to what he used to do. I was a fisherman when you called me. That's all I really know what to do. I don't know how to do anything else, you know. Watch what happens. John chapter 21, verses 1 through 6. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Canaan in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, and two other disciples were together. Now here's seven guys at least hanging out together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Friends, you can't do anything without Christ. It ends in any wonder they didn't catch anything. The Bible says that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore. But the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called to them, Friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, Throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. What was Jesus doing? He was showing them, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Believe me, Jesus was on the bank of that lake before the disciples got within range. Jesus started before they started. He built a fire. He cooked bread. He was already cooking fish when he could see them on the horizon. You see, with Jesus, you'll never be disconnected from your provider. He knew exactly where they were going to come in that day. Now, please make note how quickly the fullness of their net is dwarfed by the fullness of of Christ's grace. John chapter 21, verse 7, the next scripture. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and he jumped into the water. Now there's a lot of guys that get excited over one fish. A lot of guys that get excited over one fish. 
especially if it's a big fish. They get very excited. They've got 153 large fish in the net. But the moment John said, it's the Lord, Peter jumps in the water and he swims to shore. We're more than 100 yards out at this point in time. Do you see the passion? Do you see how Christ's grace has dwarfed what's in the net? I do. What do we learn from this narrative that encompasses both grace and truth? Okay, we don't want to throw out truth. We learn that it was truth that told the disciples where the fish were located. We learn that it was truth that told the disciples what to do. But it was grace that called them friend in the midst of their failure because they had all fled from Jesus when he was crucified. It was still grace that called them friend in the midst of their disappointment. And it was grace that filled their net with fish. So it is with truth and grace for us. Truth may fill our minds with information, but it is grace that fills our heart with revelation and transformation. In John chapter 3, we discover another man who came to Jesus by night. This man didn't know the first thing about grace. He came to Jesus searching for truth and truth alone. Here's the story, John chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, which means good teacher, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could do the signs, perform the signs that you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, look at those words, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked, surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb and be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? Here's the third time he says, I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? I thought about this. Here is a quiet, uninterrupted conversation with Nicodemus. It doesn't even say that the disciples were listening in. If they were, they were quiet. Here's Jesus and Nicodemus. Now surely Jesus knew what was wrong with Nicodemus. If there would have been arthritis in the hip, Jesus would have known that. If Nicodemus would have had a toothache, Jesus would have known that. And surely this would have been a good time for Jesus just to say, Nicodemus, come here, let me touch your hip. Let me pop that back in socket for you. Let me fix that tooth that's been bothering you that you haven't told anybody about. Surely if Nicodemus would have received that from Christ, he would have known, well, you've got to be someone really super special. How would you have known those things about me? But Jesus did not do that. Now you would have thought, man, this would have been a great opportunity, Jesus, for you to do that. No, I'll tell you what Jesus was doing. Jesus was meeting Nicodemus exactly where Nicodemus wanted to be met. All Nicodemus came searching for was truth. And Jesus was almost matter of fact with him. He was just telling him, you know, a guy's got to be born again. And there's this great exchange going on. And he talks about the wind. He talks about the spirit. He's really kind of matter of fact about this whole thing. 
Jesus gave him a heart full of truth. But then true to Jesus' nature, he transitioned from truth to grace. Because up to this point, Nicodemus hasn't understood one single word Jesus has said. God forbid preachers all across the world preaching where people don't understand it. I mean, what's the point? All he's doing is he's building his case. You came to me looking for truth, I gave you a bunch of truth. But Nicodemus, let me tap into something now you are familiar with. Let's look at verse 14 and 15. Jesus says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. I'll bet you you could have heard a pin drop in the heart of Nicodemus. Because you know what Jesus just did there? Jesus just pointed him back to Numbers chapter 21, a passage that Nicodemus would know by heart because he would know the Torah. He was very familiar with that story about Moses in the desert when the Israelites would get bitten by vipers and they were dying and God told them to make a pole put a pole in the ground, put a brass serpent up on there. That brass serpent doesn't represent Christ, but it represents judgment. Brass always speaks of judgment, and all of our judgment was drawn to the cross. So when Jesus said that to him, Nicodemus would have went, wow, this is what revelation will do in your heart. It will grab a hold of your heart, and it will do things to your heart. I mean, it will shake it up. <laughs> it will. He tapped into something Nicodemus was very very familiar with. And then after he had Nicodemus on the edge of his seat, he dropped the most awesome scriptures into his heart that you've ever seen in the Word of God, John 3.16 and John 3.17, where he said, Nicodemus, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but through him the whole world would be saved. That's grace. You see, all Nicodemus was familiar with is, I've got to work my way to heaven. I've got to work my way. I've got to do. I've got to do. I've... No, it's done, friends. When Jesus said, for God so loved the world, Nicodemus. Nicodemus would have went, no, he can't love the whole world. He only loves those that are obedient and obey all the Ten Commandments. No, God so loved the world, Nicodemus, that he gave his only begotten son. Now, Nicodemus, I want to accentuate this word that whosoever so we color outside of the line of Pharisees and Sadducees. I mean, all these religious people. I want to color outside of that paradigm for you for just a moment. And I want to show you that God so loved the world that whosoever believeth in him should not perish or will not perish, but will have everlasting life. I want you to know something. That truth hit Nicodemus's heart like a sledgehammer. I tell you, there's only been a couple of things in life, news that has reached my ears that took my breath away. And I, I never forget those things. I'll tell you what, it doesn't say, but I'll guarantee that his heart skipped a beat and it took his breath away when he heard that. He didn't know how to respond to that, that God could so love the world. See, Jesus met him where he wanted to be. Truth, 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 truth. Facts, 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 facts. But now Nicodemus, let me tell you something you've never heard. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, Nicodemus. Oh, that right there would have just... I don't know how Nicodemus would have received that because it was a dog-eat-dog -dog world back then. It was do good, get good, do bad, get bad. That's the kind of system that was set up under the old covenant. Nicodemus was the first one who heard those words. Nicodemus' law-driven, performance-centered gospel was just hijacked by the fullness of Christ's grace. Nicodemus heard the gospel of grace in a nutshell. 
You don't have to do. You just have to believe and receive. Through the encounter of Jesus and the Pharisee Nicodemus, we see firsthand the power of grace and truth working together. Had Jesus had just given Nicodemus truth that night, I don't know if we'd ever heard his name mentioned again in the Bible. He probably would have walked away and said, okay, I got what I needed. That's all I need. And I don't know what he would have done with that if Jesus would have just said, you must be born again, and then just walked away from that. But when Jesus unleashed those powerful words and those powerful truths and that powerful grace, I want you to know something. Something began to happen. Let's take a look at the impact of grace and truth working together in the restless and relentless heart of Nicodemus the Pharisee. You see, Nicodemus had two up-close and personal encounters with Jesus, once in life and then once in death. John chapter 19, verses 38 through 42. Now this is post-cross. Jesus has died on the cross. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. Look at those words. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who had visited Jesus earlier by night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Now, why is it significant for us to know that Nicodemus helped Joseph of Arimathea prepare Jesus' body? Ask yourself that question. Why is that important? Because the story tells us something that words didn't in this narrative. And that is, there had to have been a heart transformation in Nicodemus because a Pharisee would never touch the body of a criminal. And Jesus, when he was crucified, he was crucified between two criminals. He was crucified as a criminal, and everybody at the base of the cross except Jesus' followers saw him as just another criminal. And a Pharisee would never touch the body of a criminal. You see, grace and truth had brought Nicodemus to the cross where he could experience the fullness of Christ's grace. Nicodemus had united himself with the death of Christ during the feast of the Passover celebration. He set his heart on the true Passover lamb that is Jesus, the one who had revealed himself to Nicodemus in the midst of darkness through the fullness of grace. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7 says, get rid of the old yeast. That literally means get rid of the old covenant so that you may be a new unleavened batch. That means you're under the new covenant as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. John chapter 1, verses 14 and 16. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Out of his fullness we have received grace upon grace already given. Now, even though the word grace is not mentioned in the balance of John's gospel, it doesn't mean that there weren't expressions of grace. Let me ask you a question. What was it that Jesus showed the Samaritan woman at the well found in John chapter 4? What was that? You see, first of all, truth showed up and said, you've had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. That was truth. 
Truth showed up and said, you've been coming to this well a long time, and you're going to have to keep coming back to this well. That's just truth. But it was grace that spoke into that woman's heart, and he said to her, I know a way out of that lifestyle. I know a way that you can take a drink of water that you don't have to keep coming back to this well. That's grace. No mention of grace, but you see grace in its purest form there. Oh, I love that story. The fullness of Christ's grace offered her a drink from a fountain that would never run dry. I love that. What was it that Jesus showed the man beside the pool of Bethesda in John chapter 5? You see, Jesus strolled into the pool of Bethesda and there were lame and sick and impotent folks laying all over the place. Hundreds, maybe thousands of them. And it was true, that man had been in that condition for 38 years. And it was true that the first one that was in the water, when the water was stirred, it was true that that person would be healed. But Jesus singled him out. And he walked up to him and he said, pick up your mat and walk. I'm going to tell you something, that was grace. That was grace to just single you out. See, grace is God's idea. Grace is his idea. It wasn't ours. We wouldn't show grace. It takes grace upon grace to get inside of you before you can show and demonstrate and give this kind of grace. The only reason I can be gracious today is because grace lives in me. So it was grace that showed up for that man at the pool of Bethesda and said, pick up your mat and walk. One of my favorites is this woman that's caught in the act of adultery. And truth showed up and said, yes, you have been caught in the act of adultery, the very act. Yes, in the law, it says you must be stoned. Yes, Jesus said to the Pharisees standing there, he that is without sin cast the first stone. All of that is truth. But it was only grace that looked at that woman and said, where are your accusers? It was grace that looked at her and said, I don't condemn you. It was grace that gave that woman the gift that day of no condemnation. That was an expression of Jesus's grace, the fullness of grace, when he just stayed her imminent death sentence. Why did he do that? He wanted to demonstrate grace, pure and simple. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, we find these truths. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. In other versions, it just says walk in him. So let me ask you the question. This says, just as you receive Christ. So the question is, how did we receive Christ as Lord? Friends, it was grace through faith. That's how we receive Christ as Lord. So you see in the scripture right here, it says, so then just as you receive Jesus Christ as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. In him speaks of an inward transformation. Rooted speaks of a downward stabilization. You see the deeper roots grow on a tree, the more stable that tree becomes. Rooted means a downward stabilization. It says built up, that speaks of an upward escalation. But it says overflowing, which speaks of an outward manifestation. Too often churches teach outward manifestation and upward escalation and downward stabilization while neglecting the weightier matter of inward transformation. And that's what grace does. It transforms you from the inside out. I believe inward transformation is the seedbed of the fullness of God's grace, the fullness of Christ's grace. Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. 
See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. You see that? Isn't that awesome? <laughs> he said, see to it that no one takes you captive. That's a strong word, man, captive, that someone's going to take you captive. And how do they do it? Through hollow and deceptive philosophy. Do you think that is still around today? I'll tell you, it's still around today. Philosophy doesn't go away. Watch what it says then. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Look at those words. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. In Christ, you, me, in Christ, we have been brought to fullness. Now, we're talking spiritually. So don't think that sometimes when you stumble, you trip up, you don't know something, that suddenly you don't have the fullness of Christ living in you. Yes, you always have the fullness of Christ living in you. Look at these words. In Him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. What is he saying? It wasn't by natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will. It wasn't any of those things. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off. It was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. Look at those words. He forgave us all our sins. Having canceled the written code which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Now, that's one of my favorite scriptures, that 14th verse right there. It's one of my favorite scriptures because when it talks about taking it away, nailing it to the cross, one of the things they used to do in back in the day, in this time that this Bible was written back then, these scriptures were written, is when they wanted to cancel a debt, or they wanted to expunge a debt, or they wanted to show that a debt was paid in full, they would take that contract, because they had contracts back then too, they would take that contract and they would nail it to a pole. They would pierce it to a pole so that everybody could walk by it and go, that debt's been canceled. And the Bible says, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 16 through 20. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power. Do you remember he gave us the power to become sons of God? Here it is again. Strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have the power together with all the Lord's people to grasp how wide that's outward and long that's downward and high that's upward and deep that's inward is the love of Christ and that is toward and to know this love that surpasses knowledge Look at these words, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. The same fullness of God that Christ spoke in Nicodemus' heart when he said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I get happy about those scriptures. Romans chapter 11, verses 16 through 18. If the part of the dough offered as firstfruits is holy then the whole branch is holy. Come on, meditate on that for a moment now. If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, 
so are the branches. Now, what did Jesus call himself? He called himself the root of David. He referred to himself as the root in the book of Revelation. The Bible says, if the root is holy, then so are the branches. Who is the root? That's Jesus. Who are the branches? John 15, us. The Bible says, if the root is holy, so are the branches. You don't have unholy branches on a holy root. That's good news. That's, that's liberating. You don't have unholy branches on a holy root. He said, if the root is holy, so are the branches. Friends, I didn't make this stuff up. I didn't move words around. I'm telling you, these are in the Bible. He said, if the root is holy, so are the branches. If some of the branches have been broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches, okay? And that's one thing I love about grace. Grace just levels the playing field. I don't see myself as any better than anybody else. He says this, if you do, he says, if you're going to compare yourself to others and stuff like that, he said, if you do, he said, consider this, you do not support the root, but the root supports you. Man, that'll take the wind out of your sail, won't it? The root is what supports you. The branches don't support the root. The root supports the branches. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 through 23. Let's take a look and see who this first fruit is, okay? Remember he said, uh, if the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. There it is. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. I don't know how we could have stumbled over these kind of truths for all those years, do you? It's just amazing to me. All that time I was working so hard. I'm not against working hard for Jesus. We continue to work hard for Jesus, but my motivation today is different. I'm not trying to prove anything other than that God is good. No, I get my sap. I get my nourishment. I get my holiness from the root. If the root is holy, then so are the branches. John chapter 1, verse 16, out of his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace already given. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 18 through 23. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power, that same power that he gave us back in John chapter 1 and verses 14 through 17, that same power, he says, that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Did you see that, man? He appointed him to be the head of the body, his body, the fullness of him. I don't know how we can run around say, thinking we lack, we don't have any power. No, it abides. He abides. The word abide means live. He lives in us. We used to sing that song. He abides. Come on, guys. He abides. Hallelujah. He abides with me. Just saying he lives. He lives. He lives. He lives. My closing scriptures. 
are found in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 22. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in Him, in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything He might have the supremacy. Look at these words, my Lord. For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now, but now, or we can say at last, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight. Remember the branch is holy because the root is holy without blemish and free from accusation. I want you to hear those words right there. Look at them. They're in the Bible, okay? It just talks about Jesus' death and the Father's fullness living in Christ. And it talks about He did this so that we could be reconciled back to Christ through His physical death on the cross so that we could be presented, look at those words, as holy in His sight. Now, did He say we had to do anything to be holy? No. Receive, believe, that's it. And He says this. He says, because I see you holy, he said, I see you without blemish and free from accusation. Are you meaning just since I stepped up here this morning, Daddy? No. It's the way I see you, son, every moment of every day. I see you without blemish. Come on, I'm going to tell you something. The next time the enemy, the adversary knocks on your door and tells you you got a pimple where it doesn't belong, you just tell him, my daddy sees me without blemish. My daddy sees me free from accusation. That's all that is. That's just an accusation from the enemy. And you say, that is not the way my daddy sees me. My daddy sees me as a holy branch because I'm connected to a holy root. I'm connected and I'm never going to be an orphan in his eyes. Friends, the good news that puts its arms around us from the scriptures are these. We have a promise that he will never leave us as orphans. And the fullness of Christ's grace seals that promise with the widest and the longest and the deepest and the highest love there is. What love am I talking about? I'm talking about daddy's unrestrained love. When the Bible instructs us to make sure that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophies, which depends on human tradition and on the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. It is synonymous with saying, see to it that no one puts you in the orphanage of hollow and deceptive philosophy, an orphanage that depends on natural descent, an orphanage that depends on human decisions, or an orphanage that depends on a husband's will rather than through the fullness of Christ's grace. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ, the Bible says, you have been, you have been brought to fullness. In Christ there is no part and parcel, there is only 
fullness. And because he lives forever, he intercedes for us. He has a permanent priesthood in heaven. Therefore, he is able to save us completely and present us to the Father without blemish and free from accusation. You see, friends, it is solely from the fullness of Christ's grace that we receive grace upon grace already given. Amen. Daddy, I want to thank you for this marvelous, marvelous truth. I have taken the scriptures, Daddy. I have not twisted them. I have not taken them out of context. I've taken the scriptures and I've showcased your heart. Oh, how beautiful your heart is, Daddy. And Daddy, I want to thank you as we continue to embrace the wonderful truth that we are without blemish in your eyes. We're without defect. We're free from accusation. We have power living on the inside of us simply because we received and we believed in Jesus. We believed on that name. I want to thank you for that, Father. I want to thank you, Father, that your promise transcends what people want to tell us as we walk and course our way through this world. They tell us that if you do good, you get good. They bring in all these other philosophies. But I want to thank you, Father, that we live from a truth and from a grace that we have been brought to the fullness of Christ through his grace and by his grace alone. And we thank you for that, Father, as you seal that wonderful truth in our hearts, grace upon grace already given in Jesus' name. Amen.